Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with Tristram Hicks, co-author with Nicholas Gilmore of the book, War on Dirty Money. A veteran of New Scotland Yard who now consults on anti-money laundering and counter-terror finance operational systems, Tristram details how the current global AML-CFT regime fails to catch the bad guys and what can be done to change that. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. So it's my pleasure today to have Tristram Hicks with me, former detective superintendent at New Scotland Yard, who operates now as an international criminal justice advisor that looks at the operational effectiveness of anti-money laundering regimes. Tristram, good to have you talk today about this book that you've written, The War on Dirty Money with Nicholas Gilmore. Welcome. It is a pleasure to be here, Kieran. Thank you for inviting me on. And I look forward to uh, hopefully explaining a bit more about this book, which is a book of solutions. A lot of people write about crime and criminals, but not many people talk about possible solutions to a difficult situation that the world is in, in relation to illicit financial flows and money laundering. Well, you've kind of anticipated my first question. What did you hope to accomplish with this book? It is a a sweeping, I think critique is fair, of the way we do anti-money laundering now and anti-financial crime in general. You use the term solutions. So tell me a little bit about, as the reader picks it up, what should they anticipate in terms of why you wrote the book? Well, it's intended to be a global book covering the sweep of when money laundering was first created and covering the whole system that governs compliance and anti-money laundering and what these things really mean. There's quite a lot about explaining the jargon and trying to give a, a simple history of how we got to where we are now and how we started off quite well in the war on dirty money but we went off the rails quite quickly and we need to do a reset and that's the reason we wrote the book after 30 years of my experience i felt i had something to say from a law enforcement perspective which is a perspective that we don't hear much about in this area so that was the origin of the book among the resets that you bring up let's just talk about the uh, Financial Action Task Force. The last interview in this series was with David Lewis uh, talking about the Financial Action Task Force and where it's come and what it's done. Can you tell me a little bit about the ways in which you found the Financial Action Task Force wanting? It does seem to me that it did establish a global standard for anti-money laundering, but it has some problems. Tell me about those. So I should start by saying I'm a fan of the Financial Action Task Force. I'm a fan of David Lewis, actually, and I did listen to him on your podcast. As you say, the FATF did set up the global infrastructure for all of this. And when they first started in 1990, they started where money laundering wasn't a crime. So they managed to establish that as a crime in over 200 jurisdictions. In each of those, there is also a financial intelligence unit so that the reporting sector, mainly banks, can report suspicious activity. And there's also a national committee to oversee how that system works. And all of that was missing in 1990, and that had to be created from scratch. And the FATF has gone from small beginnings 
to an organisation which has regional bodies. Its meetings are very well attended at a high level by ministers. When it puts a country on a list, then people pay attention to uh, the activities of the FATF and they've written some very good manuals on how to do things. So I'm a fan overall. But over the years, it's kind of gone a little bit in a direction that's towards compliance and a tick box environment. And it needs to get back to operational effectiveness. That's the overall picture. Just explaining that a bit more. For the first 20 years, the FATF focused on the recommendations. And the idea was that if you followed the recommendations, money would be prevented from entering the financial system. And and I used to read these country reports, three or 400 pages per country, and think, well, are they any good? Does, Does this country know about money laundering? Have they got effective systems? Are they operationally bringing people to account? And quite often you couldn't tell. The FATF and not because of me, I hasten to add, uh, the FATF realised this too. So they, they created something called operational effectiveness as a evaluation methodology in 2012. Uh, and at the same time, they added tax evasion to the list of crimes for money laundering. Uh, and up until then, somehow it had escaped being on the list of all the other crimes from which you can make money. So those two things happened in 2012. And since then, the operational effectiveness gives me an idea of of how criminal justice is doing justice to the compliance industry, is one way to put it. And I think they could be doing more of that. That's a summary. Well, among the things you talk about is that um, they have moved into this regime. Well, maybe they've always had a little bit of this. And then again, with the reestablishment of the gray lists and the black lists, they've moved into kind of naming and shaming. And you use that term also to describe sometimes how the uh, mutual evaluation reports sound. Tell me a little bit about the problems with naming and shaming and more global picture that you see for the Financial Action Task Force. Well, one of the problems is that they're they're not the only ones to produce lists of countries to watch, if you like. And therefore, it gets a bit confusing because you've got the European Commission making a list, you've got um, other lists in relation to corruption and financial secrecy. It's quite difficult to work out what's going on. And the countries that have been selected to go on the FATF list tend to always be small developing countries who aren't famous for being wealthy. And it it seems odd that they are the countries that go on the list. And I kind of think that the whole approach to doing evaluations country by country isn't really telling us at a global level what's going on. And one of the problems is, firstly, the evaluations are too infrequent. So any particular country is evaluated every eight to 10 years, and that just is not frequent enough. It also gives you a snapshot of that country. And the problem with that is it doesn't tell you about the relationships of that country to other countries. So the whole area of illicit financial flows isn't covered by the evaluation process. And this means that you can't get a picture of how a particular country and how financial flows are bad for that country or its partner countries. Somehow we need to change the evaluation process so that it does a number of things. One is to look at the flows between countries. So any particular country ought to be looking at the flows to that country, which wouldn't be the whole world. Most financial flows from any country flow to its neighbours and perhaps some other countries for historical or colonial reasons. 
So I don't think it has to be an extensive assessment of the financial flows to and from a country. There's also an opportunity to capture good practice. And at the moment, the evaluation process is a bit blamey. And it's blaming countries that they could do better. Um, and it doesn't really seize the opportunity to find and promulgate good practice by the evaluation process. And it could. There are other evaluation processes that do that. I have written about uh, some opportunities that are being missed. So ideally, if you summed it up, what would change? You're, you're, you're saying it would look more international, the evaluations, look at flows. Don't look at countries as much in isolation. And what else? There's a big gap in the whole regime between prevention and enforcement. And when I'm talking about enforcement, I'm talking about criminal justice enforcement as opposed to regulatory enforcement. And the issue here is that the prevention system is massively resourced. I and mean, we are spending a fortune, over $200 billion a year and rising, according to LexisNexis. It's pretty unclear exactly what we're getting for that money. And on the enforcement side, the budget is so small that we don't measure it at all. And yet, when we try and evaluate and say, well, is compliance working? The example that is used is asset recovery, which is something which is entirely within the purview of criminal justice. And we come up with these huge numbers in relation to the amount of proceeds of crime available to be confiscated and a very, very tiny percentage which is actually confiscated. All of that means to me that the compliance industry is not getting justice from the criminal justice system. If you like, the private sector is not getting well served by its government partners. And that's partly an issue of resource. We've got lots of money being spent. And I'm not saying invested, I'm saying spent on compliance and no money being invested. And I mean invested in the criminal justice system. And the, the reason I say invested is because if you employ tax inspectors or financial investigators, then they always make a profit. So they are an investment. You always get a return from doing that, and we should do more of it. It's unclear to me why we don't. Well, I think um, what you're describing when you say the amount of money spent uh, for AML compliance is the push has been to put this cost on the private sector, deputize the private sector. But as you're pointing out, it doesn't necessarily result in prosecutions or asset seizures from law enforcement. It's pretty interesting. And anything about fixing that failure to prosecute? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a minute about FIUs. Can you tell me anything about what is it? Is it more money for the public sector or for law enforcement or what? The thing about throwing money at a problem is that you can't afford to miss. And I do feel that we are doing that. We're not actually focused on some of the right areas and we could do a whole lot better. One of the simple things I talk about in the book is that the offence of money laundering, as defined in the United Nations conventions, uses some, some pretty simple words to say what money laundering is. And none of these definitions have either money or laundering in them. But the United Nations says that it is the property derived indirectly or directly from criminal activity. And when the United Nations conventions make those definitions, what happens is that individual countries then write a definition into their own criminal code. And the trouble was the United Nations didn't say money laundering is integral to all crime where money is the motive. So because they didn't tell countries, it arrived to lawyers in those countries as an extra crime. So they wrote an extra crime 
onto their criminal code, bolting something on, changing the definition, sometimes quite a lot, and sometimes uh, only slightly. But they created 200 different definitions of money laundering, which means that international cooperation between jurisdictions is really, really hard. And the United Nations, I think, has a role to say, actually, okay, let's just do a recap. We know we've got it wrong for 30 years. Let's make the definition clear and say money laundering is integral to crime where money is the motive and this is the definition. Can you please just write this into your criminal code? And if we did that, which sounds simple, I guess it would be a bit political, but it is just a technical thing, which means we'd all be talking about the same crime. And then we can have different definitions for drugs and theft and prostitution or whatever else we want to talk about in terms of other specific predicate crimes. But if we can at least have one definition of money laundering for criminal purposes, that would be a really good thing. And at the moment, we don't have it. And it really, really gets in the way. So the book also talks a little bit about the kind of promise and the shortcomings of FIUs, National Financial Intelligence Units. Tell me a little bit about why the FIUs are not hitting you know, on all cylinders or whatever, uh, not, not doing as well as they could. My view is a bit controversial. I think financial intelligence units that I have visited tend to be pretty well resourced. So I'm not particularly going to throw more money at that issue. And I mean that, that they're well resourced compared to the criminal justice agencies that actually do the freezing and prosecuting and confiscation, because that's actually the end game. That's what we're trying to achieve is taking money off criminals. FIUs don't do that, except on a, a temporary basis. So we really need more resources in the criminal justice side of things. And part of that resource is getting the suspicious activity reports from FIUs into the criminal justice system. And for reasons which really are not clear to me, we have an enormous regime globally producing 34 million SARS per year, approximately, and rising. They go into the FIUs and they appear to me mostly not to come out again. And this is what we call in, in the intelligence world a black hole. Far too few get as far as criminal justice. And it's criminal justice who do the confiscation. So we have a gap in the system. We have a logic break. And the issue here is that money laundering, when you boil it down to it, is information about the money is kept from information about the crime. That's what money launderers do. They just separate those two pieces of information. The rest of it is banking. Banking is the complicated bit. So money launderers separate the information about the crime and the criminal from the information about the money. FIUs actually do the same thing if they're not sending all or most of the SARS to criminal justice. So we have a really important gap in the system and none of us are being served properly as a result. Well, it is interesting that you talk about, so the criminal justice system, this need for an ability to massage, to receive and massage the SARS and work through them and, and know what's in them. And you talk about greater computer resources, greater technical resources for criminal justice. Uh, at the same time, a kind of a skepticism about the overselling right now of artificial intelligence and what it can do to prevent money laundering and to catch criminals. Tell me a little bit about that in terms of technology and what technology can't do, and particularly on the criminal justice side. Yeah, I, I mean, I come from a country where the, the technology on the criminal justice side is pretty good. So the, the computer intelligence systems that support what we call intelligence-led policing, 
which is actually the use of data sets and comparing them in order to analyse where crimes are going to happen and who's committing them. That's pretty good in the UK. But visiting other parts of the world, it's a lot less good. And these are really quite cheap systems in order to allow police to get access to data set to do a better job of policing. So I'm talking about a bigger picture, if you like. And within that, if you know more about your crime and your criminals and you're getting uh, computerised star information, then you can put the two together and you can create money laundering prosecutions or predicate crime prosecutions where asset recovery is the objective. So that's the kind of gap that I see. And meanwhile, on the prevention side, we have a, a huge industry of RegTech and FinTech, which, I, as you say, I'm sceptical about. It sometimes seems to me that these technology solutions exist to keep regulators happy and to tick boxes faster. And it's not really clear to me they produce something which is adding to the quality of SARS and the quality of what actually reaches the criminal justice system. In terms of the criminal justice system, and let's talk for a moment about the UK, we've just seen the release of the economic crime plan. Given what you see as needed, is the crime plan a step forward? I think the economic crime plan is a step forward. Um, it's very good to hear actual numbers of financial investigators being increased, the training of financial investigators, and more resources to the regional bodies that exist. I think the funding amount could be better. The funding amount is, is 0 0.1 billion pounds a year. The same day, the National Audit Office of the UK estimated the, the fraud and error loss across government in 2021 as being somewhere between 33.2 billion and 58.8 billion. And to me, financing of 0 0.1 billion to try and address that problem seems insufficient, could even be described as a rounding error. So that's a bit harsh. But having said that, it is the first resource that's gone into economic crime for a very long time. So it's good to hear that more resources are going in. And uh, I do think the solution is more financial investigators. I think there is a, a gearing benefit. The benefit of 0.1 billion will actually be much more than that because the cost is very much less than the benefit you gain for each dollar spent on financial investigators or tax investigators. So it's a mixed bag overall. Good to see that the scale of the funding, which is not forever, it's only three years. And I wonder whether that creates a problem for people who are actually recruiting financial investigators if they only have a three-year amount of funding. But these are in the details. But overall, it's welcome, but the scale is not enough. It is interesting, and I don't understand certainly how budgeting happens in the UK from Parliament out to the rest of the country. I guess, too, people are kind of waiting to see what funds actually show up in the whole funding, as I understand it. As we conclude, when you look out across the landscape, what are you hopeful about? What do you see as really positive developments in this fight against money laundering? And what do you see as issues that are not being addressed at all? Well, I remain uh, an optimist. So I do think there's reason for optimism. The invasion of, of Ukraine and the tragedy of that has focused people's attention on this area. And when we've had shocks of that nature in the past, and I write in the book about the assassinations of, of Bobby Kennedy in the States, of Veronica Guerin and uh, Jerry McCabe in Ireland, 
the assassinations of Caesar in Sicily. When these shocks to the system have happened, genuine advance in legislation and operational effectiveness is the result. It's a sad thing to say, but we have had now a global shock in the form of the Ukraine war, and that is getting more attention paid to this area. And I hope that this book will provide some solutions that people can look at and consider from 30 years of experience from Nick Gilmore and myself. Uh, we come from a, a good, positive place and we want the world to be a better place. And we actually think our solutions at the end of each chapter provide a way forward in each of the areas that we've covered. So we are quite optimistic. It's a shame, a tragedy that uh, it's been driven by a global crisis, a shock. But uh, our experience is those shocks can result in some benefit. And I hope part of that will be a better approach to financial crime, which is causing misery for millions of people. Not enough resources are going to poor people because it's being stolen. They're not getting the healthcare and education and the rise from poverty. We're not saving the planet from ecological risk because we're not doing well enough in the war against dirty money. Money does actually make the world go around and we need to win this war in order to make the world a better place. Well, uh, we're going to end on that note. Tristram Hicks, co-author uh, with Nicholas Gilmore of The War on Dirty Money. Thanks for being here today. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak here. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Tristram Hicks, co-author of The War on Dirty Money. I hope you found the podcast compelling and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.